You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Episode 7, Who Financed Hitler? Part 1, or If Money Go Before, Always Do Lie Open. Today I'm recording from the Four Seasons in Munich, Germany. The Great Bard once said, If money go before, always do lie open. When it comes to political parties, it's not only a fair question to ask who provided the funding, it's also the main question. Forget ideology or praxis or whatever buzzword you want to use. If you know who pays the bills, you know what is on that party's platform and what they will actually pass. This rule works better than most other systems of analysis or punditry, and if you don't agree, then you're basically a child. And when a political party comes out of nowhere to great prominence, especially on a national scale, and then takes state power, why, the question who funded them becomes the most important question of all. So, who funded the Nazis? Well, interesting you should ask. As we discussed in episode 6, the Thule Society was probably the main influence on the Nazis, ideologically speaking. And it was one of the driving forces of the creation of the Nazi party, so it would make sense to ask if the Thule Society put up the funds to start and run the Nazi party. Realistically, though, the Thule Society probably did not contribute that much to the Nazi party, uh, financially speaking, since they were busy funding what was, at the time, more important projects. For instance, they were funneling between 30,000 and 70,000 marks to Freikorps Oberland on a regular basis. Freikorps Oberland was basically keeping Germany from going red, and it literally crushed the Bavarian Soviet Republic, like we talked about. The Thule Society had no idea if the Nazi party would even be feasible, so it's always important to remember that no one really knows if their plans will work. And they clearly had several front organizations going for different purposes. One of the more significant things that the Thule Society was able to provide for the party, however, was police protection, as they had many, many ties to the Bavarian police, and many of the Thule Society were, in fact, members of the police. Additionally, many Thule Society members would join the Nazi party and provide all kind of material assistance through their participation. I don't believe that Ernst Röhm was in the Thule Society, because the society was mostly full of upper-class characters, but he was close to several prominent members. Rome, as we talked about, was a World War I veteran, and he was in the Bavarian Free Corps for Border Patrol East before running a gang called the Iron Fist, which, as far as I could tell, consisted of provoking Marxists into fistfights in beer halls. Rome ended up joining the Nazi party and formed the nucleus of what became the Brown Shirts. As an aside, the brown shirts came from the fact that the Nazis were simply able to obtain a large amount of khaki shirts that originally, that were originally intended for usage in Africa. What's that quote about fascism being the chickens coming home to roost for colonialism? It's important to remember that Rome was still in the Reichswehr during his time as one of the commanders of the Freikorps and during his early days as a Nazi. His official rank was captain, but his duties included being in charge of press and propaganda. Actually, he performed very interesting, sensitive work, which included clandestine movement of arms out of reach of the Allied Control Commission, 
which made him a key figure in the so-called Black Reichswehr, which was the surreptitious reserve of the reduced legitimate army. The legitimate army was limited to 100,000 men by the Versailles Treaty. If this sounds a little bit like a precursor or early form of Operation Gladio, why, you would be right. Now, Rome brought in many officers and veterans, all of whom were battle-hardened brawlers who hated the Weimar Republic. This gave the party the muscle it needed to defend themselves from the Marxists in the streets and beer halls, and to begin intimidation. Rome also siphoned army funds to Hitler's movement, but it didn't usually consist of cash. Rome made it so that the Nazi party could list party bills as Freikorps expenses for reimbursement, and allowed them to obtain various government services the army was normally entitled to receive. The technique Rome used to funnel army money and material to Hitler is very fascinating. Basically, what they did is they set up two privately owned corporations. One was dependent on the other. The basic corporation, which had to be top secret, the Feldzug Ministerei, directed by Rome. The other dependent corporation was the Faber Motor Vehicle Rental Service, operated openly as a business by Major Wilhelm Faber, who was under Rome's command. Rome had approval to set these up because they were also used to hide armaments and vehicles that were forbidden by the Versailles Treaty, and these vehicles were also used by the Freikorps. The Nazi party also had access to this equipment. As time went on, more and more of this aid went to the Nazi party, but Rome's two corporations were never really a source of cold hard cash like the party really needed. So we see that the Thule Society and Rome's organization could not provide very much by way of funds. There's a list of small shop owners which also provided funds, and that's not very surprising because petty bourgeois shop owners would of course be interested in fascism, but they didn't and couldn't provide very much support. What about the other Thule members? One Thule Society member and early Nazi was Dietrich Eckhart, who we talked about last episode. He was the guy who went with Hitler to Berlin during the right-wing cop push, they were undercover. He was a poor but apparently very talented author. He wrote stage plays, and for example, his translation of an Ibsen play apparently became the generally accepted standard translation. His poetry was full of mystical, nationalist themes, and it was Eckert who apparently started to groom Hitler for introduction into polite society. He wrote The Storm Lied, one of the other popular Nazi songs, and his main value to the party was in introducing Hitler to several of the main financial backers of the Thule Society. Next, there's Alfred Rosenberg, who is very important. He was a Baltic German, which is to say that his family were German and they settled in the Baltics. Although Rosenberg was penniless himself, he had very interesting connections. Rosenberg and Eckert worked together on the Thule Society front organization and specifically working on their publications. He would write on topics like the Russian-Jewish Revolution. He spoke Russian fluently, and he was in charge of researching communism's connection to the Jews, as they put it. I think you know where I'm going with this one. That's right. It's Alfred Rosenberg who introduces Hitler to the White Russians, and to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, it's a good time to explain who the White Russians are, in case you're unfamiliar with that term. It refers to Russians who fought the Reds during the Civil War. 
and large numbers of them fled Russia to Europe and America afterwards. White Russian communities formed all over Europe and America, including a large number of Russian nobility. Vladimir Nabokov, for instance, was a white Russian, and so was George de Morenschild, a close personal friend to Lee Harvey Oswald. And for those of you who don't know what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion are, it's a document that is said to be the minutes from a secret meeting of Jewish leaders in 1897, which was the year of the first International Zionist Congress, in real life that is. The document reveals a terrible plot to undermine European society, overthrow all governments, and take over the world, with the main weapons being Marxist revolution and international finance, as well as the media. It's probably worth doing its own episode one day because it's a fascinating topic, but long story short, it was a fabrication made by the Okhrana, Imperial Russia's secret police, and it is demonstrably forged from previous documents. The Thule Society published the protocols to much acclaim in Germany, and the financial backers of that particular document preferred to remain anonymous. It has been said that Eckert, Rosenberg, and other members of the Thule Society conducted spiritualistic neo-pagan seances with an entourage of white Russian emigres. Certainly, many of the upper-class Russian exiles were interested in such phenomena because Tsar Nicholas II and his wife had been avid spiritualists. It is difficult, however, to obtain precise information on the mystical activities of the Thule Society. For example, Baron Sebaldendorf, who we talked about last episode, he was the founder of the Thule Society. This baron had delivered a lecture on divining rods, for example. And from what they can tell, pan-German propaganda was the front-facing stuff that the society put out for mass consumption. Various intermediate levels of involvement in mystical activities, and there was supposedly an inner circle who gained higher levels of initiation through the practice of neo-pagan ritual. Now, I would kill to know what the Thule Society's seances and neo-pagan rituals precisely consisted of. But you know, it's not clear whether the mysticism was a cover for semi-illegal political activity, or whether the political propaganda was intended to shroud the occult rituals. Take your pick. A bit spooky, perhaps exaggerated description of the Thule Society's occulted knowledge is given in a French book, The Morning of the Magicians. It reads, the legend of Thule is as old as the Germanic race. It was supposed to be an island that had disappeared somewhere in the extreme north. Off Greenland or Labrador, like Atlantis, Thule was thought to have been the magic center of a vanished civilization. Eckhart and his friends believed that not all the secrets of Thule had perished. Beings intermediate between man and other intelligent beings from beyond would place at the disposal of the initiates a reservoir of forces which could be drawn on to enable Germany to dominate the world again, and be the cradle of the race of supermen which would result from mutations of the human species. One day her legions would set out to annihilate everything that had stood in the way of the spiritual destiny of the earth, and their leaders would be men who knew everything, deriving their strength from the very fountainhead of energy 
and guided by the great ones of the ancient world. Such were the myths on which the Aryan doctrine of Eckhart and Rosenberg was founded. Or as I call it, Theosophy strikes again. It always comes back to the ascended hidden masters, doesn't it? December 1920, the Nazis acquired its own newspaper, the Volkischer Beobachter, which was owned by Fraulein Kathy Bierbaumer, who was the mistress of Baron Sebottendorf whose share of the newspaper was valued at 46,500 marks. Where did they get the money to buy the paper? Now, the total purchase price of the newspaper was 120,000 marks, and a contract was signed for the assumption of debts amounting to 250,000 marks. The Nazis secured 60,000 from General von Epp, and the other 60,000 came from the first major infusion of funds that the Nazi party ever received, coming from Dr. Gottfried Grondel, an industrialist from Augsburg, Bavaria, who worked with the Hansa Bank to secure the funds. I'm a big believer in synchronicity, and around this time, Hitler just happened to be walking down the street when he saw his old friend Max Amon, who was his regimental sergeant major during World War I. By Hitler's telling, their meeting on the streets of Munich was totally by accident. But Amon, of course, was in the Thule Society, so it's likely that their meeting was not a coincidence. We talked about Amon in episode 4. He comes up in Dr. Karl Kroner's report on Hitler during World War I. Dr. Kroner, of course, was writing in his report to the Office of Naval Intelligence and he was discussing the need to silence the various witnesses who knew the truth about Hitler's psychosomatic illness. He used Sergeant Major Amon as a case of the simplest person to silence because he was bought, because he was appointed Hitler's business manager for the entire German press. Over time, through this position, Herr Amon acquired a large fortune by highly disreputable methods. He is today a millionaire many times over. So goes the quote from Dr. Karl Kroner in that report. So when Hitler reconnected with Amon, Amon was a mortgage banker. But Hitler convinced him to quit and become the Nazi party's business manager. Amon's motto was make propaganda pay its own way and he helped the Volkischer Beobachter at least cover its expenses. Another valuable skill was that Amon helped the party get short-term credit from banks when no one else was able to. More than once, Amon got extensions on credit, which meant the very survival of the newspaper. Start to finish, the Volkischer Beobachter was financed, organized, and originally owned by the Thule Society. So... Early on, an executive at the company Siemens & Halski sympathized with the Nazi party and brought Hitler to speak at the National Club of Berlin, which was a prestigious club of Junkers, officers, and businessmen. That meeting brought Hitler in contact with the former commander of the German Marine Corps, Admiral Schroeder, who was the first high-ranking officer to join the Nazi party. That really helped set the Nazis apart from the other groups in the eyes of the military-worshipping Germans, and the Admiral 
was key to making introductions into Prussia's upper class. Perhaps it seems a bit strange that after all the support the army gave Hitler, that the first high officer to join his party would be an admiral. But it's not, given the secret connection between the German navy and the Thule Society. We are definitely going to revisit the interesting, consistent role that navies and naval intelligence plays in espionage in many countries all over the world. There is quite a bit to chew on there, so more to come. The Thule Society had a secret link with the central government in Berlin. According to Baron Sabatendorf, the official book publisher for the German Navy, J.F. Lehmann, was the most active member of the Thule Society, and one of its biggest financiers. Considering that the activity level of the Thule Society was already pretty high, that is a very interesting and fantastic claim to make, but it does appear to be true. Before the Thule Society rented their own offices in the Four Seasons Hotel, just down the hall from Army Intelligence offices, if you'll recall from last episode, they held their meetings in the rooms of the Naval Officers Club in that same hotel. These close ties are basically indisputable. When you have an organization right down the hall from an intelligence organization, you know, that's just not a coincidence. The commander of the Navy, Admiral von Trotha, an extreme nationalist, anti-communist, and strong supporter of one of the Freikorps, did not join the Nazi party, but he probably helped funnel naval funds to the Nazi party. Kurt Ludicki, who ran the elite stormtroop company, also worked as a party fundraiser. He and Alfred Rosenberg are perhaps the two most important fundraisers in the Nazi party. Kurt Ludicki reportedly made contact with various members of high society like Count Fugger and the Duke of Anhalt, and both gave unspecified amounts of money but declined to join the party themselves. In November of 1922, Ernst Hontstengel went to see Hitler speak on the advice of Captain Truman Smith, assistant military attaché of the United States. Hontstengel was a German-American Harvard graduate from a wealthy family, although I suppose it's redundant to say Harvard graduate from a wealthy family in the 1920s, seeing as it was generally the same thing. His family owned an art publishing company in Munich and owned an art gallery in New York City. You might be saying to yourself, hey, why is a military attaché of the United States sending a prominent Harvard graduate to the Nazi party? That's a great question. Let's see if we can figure it out from the rest of his life. Hontstengel joined the party and was valuable in two ways. First, he was able to give $1,500 in U.S. currency, which was worth a small fortune when converted into depreciated marks. They bought American rotary presses, which allowed the Volkischer Beobachter to become a full-size daily newspaper. Second, Hontstengel was another entry point for Hitler to meet upper-class Munich. Hontstengel was introduced to Hitler by William Bayard Hale, who was friends with Woodrow Wilson at Princeton, 
and was the chief European correspondent of the Hearst Newspaper Empire. Now, we will definitely talk about the Hearst Newspaper Empire in the future. Hearst Newspapers had a very interesting relationship to the Nazis, let's just say. As a side note, Hontstengel was related to the Civil War General John Sedgwick, and Hontstengel's godfather was Duke Ernst II of Saxe, Coburg, and Gotha. When he attended Harvard, he met and knew Walter Lippmann and John Reed. When he lived in New York City before his time with the Nazis, he met and knew Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His social circle included newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst, Charlie Chaplin, and he was even engaged to Juna Barnes, who, if you know anything about Juna Barnes, is quite a funny notion. Absolutely fascinating. After his involvement with the Nazis, he worked for FDR's S-Project, which revealed secrets about Nazi leaders, and he helped write the OSS report, Analysis of the Personality of Adolf Hitler. Another important fundraiser in these early days was Max Erwin von Schubner Richter. He's legitimately mysterious, and we don't know everything about his life, but from what people can gather, he came from an upper-class German-Baltic family, and he was in a Cossack regiment fighting during the 1905 revolution. He married into a manufacturing family and took his wife's noble name, von Schubner, as was the custom of the time. He fought in World War I and was appointed as German consul in Turkey. Apparently, von Schubner Richter went on dangerous expeditions to visit the Kurds and other national minorities in the Caucasus. I legitimately wonder if he got the chance to visit the Yazidis, considering some of his other interests. Von Schubner Richter later considered these experiences and knowledge to be a great asset. He managed Prussian interests in the Baltic and became extremely interested in anti-communism to keep the Bolsheviks from seizing his concerns. He also understood that anti-communism itself could be profitable for himself personally, and he made money running a propaganda agency known as the Home Office for Eastern Germans. Eastern Germany, in this usage, being a euphemism for Poland. Schubner Richter was working with the white Russian government during the Russian Civil War, when the whites controlled half of Russia. Schubner Richter was friends with Alfred Rosenberg, Mr. Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and Schubner Richter made contact with General Rangel, the general of one of the white armies. Schubner Richter and his German business associates formed the Europe Asia Company, which would have had a monopoly on trade between Germany and Russia had the white Russians won. These networks of white Russians were dedicated to undermining and overthrowing the Bolsheviks in Moscow and the Social Democrats in Berlin. Notice that for anti-communists, you can just conflate those two, it's fine. According to internal party documents, Schubner Richter succeeded in raising enormous sums of money for the party from unclear sources. It was Schubner Richter who first successfully contacted various industrialists like Fritz Tyson and Paul Reusch. 
Schubner-Richter was also a close personal friend to General Ludendorff, who we will talk about in a second. Schubner-Richter was also especially successful in getting funds from the White Russians, especially the ones who were oil men, because the oil men were able to transfer some of their fortune to Germany. These White Russians gave money to the Nazis in order to help eventually reconquer Russia and regain their lost property as they saw it. Schubner-Richter also organized a monarchist conference of whites in 1921. This was supposed to consolidate the white Russians into one political body. That was a failure because Imperial Russia didn't just fall for no reason. The white Russians were completely incapable of compromising even amongst themselves. In retrospect, that was the high point for white Russians as a political force in and of themselves but they didn't know that at the time. The German Foreign Office started funding white Russian organizations around this time, many of whom then gave the money directly to the Nazi party. Funding white Russian organizations was part of the old European great game of diplomacy, except with a new element, Bolshevism, which upset the balance of power. During the Beer Hall Push of 1923, Schubner-Richter marched arm-in-arm with Hitler, and was hit by a bullet. His fall even dislocated Adolf Hitler's shoulder. Hitler was extremely disturbed by Schubner-Richter's death and said, quote, All the others are replaceable, but not he. It's not completely confirmed, but probably a modest yet significant sum of money came from one of the members of the Bush family of St. Louis, since they were German-Americans. Of course, that's not confirmed, but it is probable. In fact, the party received a high number of small contributions from Germans living all over. In Czechoslovakia, Austria, Switzerland, Poland, the Baltics, the United States. Ernst von Borsig, the locomotive manufacturer, gave some money to the Nazi party, but was giving much more to other right-wing parties. We're talking a modest sums, like several thousand marks. Hitler also toured Switzerland several times, each time coming back with a steamer trunks full of Swiss francs and dollars. Hitler also met Prince Arenberg, and as these things go, there's more information on what they talked about than how much money he got. But apparently they became close friends. Prince Arenberg, who had been in Germany before the war, discussed colonial policy with Adolf Hitler. According to Hitler, the prince said, He told me many interesting tales of pioneering days in our colonies. He was once sentenced to 12 years of penal servitude and served six of them for having killed an N-word who had attacked him. I looked this up, and sure enough, Prince Arenberg served what looks to be more like three years for murder in the Deutsch Sudwest Africa. He was probably exaggerating the number of years to Hitler to impress him. I even found a cartoon depicting the murder, which I will post on Twitter. It's bizarre to me that a German prince would serve any time for a murder of a black person in Africa. But I suppose, well, three years is still kind of an insult. But that's crazy. I was trying to find more about the circumstances, but would you... Be surprised that the family does not seem keen to tell that particular story. 
Hitler agreed with the prince that Germany would have had greater success with her colonies if she had followed as strict a racist policy as Britain had, which I suppose might be true. Now, apart from the aristocrats, businessmen, and white Russians, there's still one other group that Hitler got money from, which is to say naval intelligence. You have to remember that the German government was using the navy to thwart Bavarian separatism, especially through funding nationalist groups like the Nazis. This is where we get into the, one of the weirdest, most complex sources of funding, coming from Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. Now, for real World War II heads out there, you might know Admiral Canaris as the guy who ran the Abwehr, which was German intelligence. Admiral Canaris was later sent to a concentration camp upon Himmler's orders for being a traitor to the Nazi regime, and was eventually executed there. All of that comes later. In the period that we're talking about, Admiral Canaris was just a lieutenant commander in the period before the Abwehr was even formed. Now, the very nature of intelligence organizations sort of precludes finding that many good traces of their activities. That is sort of their job. They are expert at covering their traces. <clears throat> so the evidence that we have of the following is rather sketchy. However, there is enough to definitively link Hitler to the organization Consul, which was a right-wing terrorist organization of former naval officers. We also have enough to link the funds of naval intelligence to the Nazi party. This is another classic example of the dangers of unsupervised intelligence agencies running amok. Basically, after the cop push, the government ordered Commander Earhart's Freikorps to disband. Instead of disbanding, he and his men fled to Bavaria, where they reorganized the unit under the name the Viking Bund. The cadre consisted of former naval officers and enlisted men. Historian Harold Gordon writes that the Viking Bund was armed only with light weapons, most of which came from hidden arsenals of the organization. Although Lieutenant Commander Wilhelm Canaris, already active in naval intelligence in similar areas, provided further weapons and money when necessary. Earhart was the commander of both the Viking Bund and a more sinister unit, the Organization Consul. As I mentioned before, this group, the Organization Consul, was a secret terrorist network made up primarily of Earhart's naval officers from the Viking Bund. With Earhart commanding both units and staffed by the same officers, it is certain that the funds that Canaris gave him financed both groups, as they were effectively the same thing. As an aside, you see this pattern repeated with Latin American death squads, where there's a above-ground organization often a special unit of the police, and a subterranean death squad, which is staffed by, surprise, surprise, the exact same people. Naval officers of the organization Consul were responsible for the assassination of Matthias Erzberger, the former minister of finance, and Walther Rathenau, Germany's brilliant Jewish foreign minister. In other words, Money from naval intelligence financed the killing of government ministers. Irrefutable evidence closely connects Hitler with the organization Consul, the Viking Bund, and Commander Erhardt. During a particularly tense period when Hitler was denouncing Erzberger and Rathenau, armed members of the organization Consul acted as Hitler's bodyguards 
instead of his own stormtroopers, and organization consul men stood on guard outside his office at party headquarters. Hermann Göring later testified that Hitler's SA and the Viking Bund were closely related. Again, this is very reminiscent of Operation Gladio, because the organizational forms that Operation Gladio used didn't just pop out of nowhere. Spies have long institutional memories. Don't listen to anyone with an NPR brain who tries to tell you otherwise. The last person to talk about is General Ludendorff. It is impossible to overstate the prestige of General Ludendorff's name in nationalist circles at this time. During the war, he was the quartermaster general of the German army, with the virtual power of dictatorship over the entire country. Even though he no longer held any official post, Freikorps leaders and rightist groups came to him for advice and guidance. General Ludendorff himself had little money, but many prominent wealthy men looked upon him as Germany's senior military officer and consequently the true leader of all nationalist forces. As we've seen, General Ludendorff was a powerful fixer, opening doors for the Nazis in these early days. Conclusions In these early days, the Nazi party was funded by occasional donations from the poor and the petty bourgeoisie. Some donations from white Russians, some industrialists, and through funds pilfered or covertly sent from the army and navy. So maybe it's just me, but going through all this, I feel like I have a much better understanding of the rise of the Nazi party when actually pinning down where the money came from. Doesn't this story sound a whole lot different when you consider that the Nazis didn't just whip up crowds and get voted in, but were started, organized, and funded basically the entire time by the German military? That's a very different story than we're normally told. Also, that this same military was organizing hits and had a death squad taking out certain government ministers and so on. Why, that's a very different story than the Weimar Republic bumbling around not sure what it should do. Still, honestly, what we've talked about doesn't cover the Nazi party's entire rise to power. They needed so much more money to come to power than what we discussed. Where did the rest of the money come from? If you'll allow me, I would like to read a passage from Who Financed Hitler, which raises these same questions. Looking back at the financing of Hitler's political activities from 1918 to 1923, one thing is particularly interesting. Many historians have contended that the National Socialist Party was financed and supported by big business. Yet, as has been seen, only two of Germany's major industrialists, Fritz Tyson and Ernst von Borsig, gave anything to the Nazi party during these early years. There is absolutely no evidence that the really big industrialists of Germany, such as Karl Bosch, Hermann Bucher, Karl Friedrich von Siemens, and Hugo Steins, or the great families such as the Krupps, and the leading bankers and financiers gave support to the Nazis from 1918 to 1923. There was one other important industrialist, in fact the world's largest, who gave to Hitler in this time period, 
but he was not a German, but an American. End quote. Hopefully you know who I'm talking about, but if you don't, you're about to find out next week. So today, of course, I pulled heavily from Who Financed Hitler, which again, I cannot emphasize enough, is a truly great work of history. Thank you again for listening. If you really want to help out with the show, just tell a friend, hey, there's this new podcast in my life, and it's it's really telling me the real truth. Just do one of them pitches, send them the link, and... Uh, Hopefully we can get more people listening to the show. Because so far I love to make the show and I love that people are listening. So thank you very much for sharing. Now I need to be on my way. I'm heading out to Detroit Rock City. God bless. God bless.